Hello everyone, it's Simon, the, you know, science communication guy, person that knows crazy shit and likes to ramble incoherently while he's driving home. I'm going to pimp out my science communication stuff just briefly for, you know, all three people that listen to this podcast that already are followers of my science communication stuff. Primarily, I've got a Facebook group, I Actually Fucking Love Real Science, and then I've got um, For Every Human and Trending Human. They don't all get the same amount of love just because I'm flat out doing other things. What am I going to talk about? What am I going to waffle about tonight? Um, evolution, because no one understands really about it. What is it? Well, we can't really talk about evolution without talking about Darwin and his journey on the HMAS Beagle in the, I want to say, 1700s. I can't really get any nails down than that because I don't know. Um, I can't remember. Probably this is the short version that's factually largely incorrect. Went to the Galap- Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands, saw some birds, went to various other islands in the Pacific and noticed that they all had similarities. Especially in the Galapagos Islands, you have finches that have the same bodies, plans as mainland finches, but they've got different snouts, different beaks, and those beaks are designed for doing different tasks. So there's a, like a seed chewer finch there's a crab opener beak it's like the swiss army knives of finch beaks there's always one that's new species that's specialized to fill xy ecological niche and this is really evident in the galapagos there's like 40 i don't know number that's not a million but might as well be species of finches that have these radial specialities now because there's no predators they just they've gone gangbusters and they've filled every ecological niche and that's that's what happens it's a microcosm of what happens everywhere bloody else the um, a guy who really should get the credit for discovering evolution, not Darwin, is a guy called Wallace. He observed differences in animals in Southeast Asia, and he know there is in fact a thing called the Wallace Line that runs through sort of Indonesia and Malaysia and and uh, runs north sort of north south ish and into and through Thailand. Um, and animals on one side are New World monkey, uh, New World creatures, and specifically monkeys as well, New World monkeys, and on the other side is Old World. Now, what I mean by New and Old World is that they have different evolutionary, I want to say protolith, but that's a geology word that means the foundation of a rock, but I can't have a better word for you right now. The origin of these species is that they're like they were separated a time ago by a mountain range or whatever happened once from one came from populations that's from Gondwana and one's from Laurasia, and I'll talk about that more in a second, but that's not the same here. Anyway, he noticed there were differences. There were similarities enough that obviously how they had come from the same stock. And not that much previously, you had Mendel, the famous monk who discovered inherited genetics. We well, didn't discover, he really pointed at it and said, oh wait, this is a thing. We've been really using inherited genetics for thousands and thousands of years to grow wheat, you know, anyway go off on a tangent about that as well. Anyway, um, so Wallace noticed that there were species that obviously had the same same origin, same forefather, and that had become different over time. So both Darwin and Wallace published on this. Darwin won, close quotation marks, and he published the books on it and became famous and is now the Santa Claus of um, evolution. But regardless, he's, you know, Watson and Crick and Rosalind Franklin and DNA and rag, rage. Anyway, um, 
So evolution, what we've noticed so far with Darwin and Wallace is this natural, is this change, this selection. Well, actually, when are we getting to selection yet? It's just a change. You have a parent stock, and then some event separates the two populations, and you have two different species after however many generations later. So that is how, that is one mechanism for evolution. Another mechanism for evolution talks about environmental pressures. So you want to understand what causes these differences. So one argument for evolution says it's just drift. So over time, you'll be in an environment and you'll change very slowly um, and you'll be different from your parent stock, okay? That's the slow passive version of drift. The other version, and they're both the same, so they're both similar mechanisms. The other version is that your environment is putting pressures on you. So, what's a good example? The finches, I've already talked about. Imagine if you were a bird, the word, and you were, like, you had, you had evolved in a certain ecological scenario. You were a seed eater, all right? And you had a beak that was evolutionarily, was really good at eating seeds because you'd been in that area for a bloody long time, largely unchallenged, and you eat seeds. That's just, your, that's your nom de plume. That's your passion, passion oster. That's what you do. You eat seeds. Now, imagine there's always a variability. Genetics, genetic drift happens anyway. So when you have a child, it's the female over and the male sperm that combines. You get half of your DNA from one parent, half from the other. And so subtle variations will occur. There's also mutations of that DNA. You will get people that exhibit characteristics that are not from the parent or the mother or the father, but from like the great, 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 great maternal grandfather. So sometimes genetics will throw a curveball. And that was in the fin in this case of the birds, maybe that that organism now has a beak that does seeds, but it can also do shells. Okay? Maybe. Maybe you can do a little bit of shells. So, and then these populations, fine. You've got a subset of the population that have got beaks that are a little bit better in shells than they are everyone else. They still do seeds, because it's perfectly fine for seeds, but these guys do shells as well, sometimes. And then the environment changes, as it is wont to do. There's a volcano, if it's short-term, if it's long-term, the climate is shifting. Uh, and yes, that's a thing, shut up. Um... And then the pressure, the seeds go away. They start to be less abundant. And then, of course, if there's less seeds, the birds with the beaks that specialize in eating seeds don't have any seeds to eat. So they're less successful, okay? The birds, this little small population of birds that could also eat shells becomes more successful. So now it comes down to another component of evolution, breeding success. All animals have, well, I won't say all because of course there's examples where this isn't the case, but most organisms that have, have to find a mate for reproduction will, and so it's animals, it really is animals, um, will, will, will base that reproduction on criteria. So, look at Birds of Paradise, for example. The males, the females, sorry, are incredibly drab. They're, they're boring. They're sort of browns and greys and 
and with really not very interesting songs and but they raise the chicks the males however oh they're the pimp daddies they've got these incredible displays they're bright they're colorful they've got these huge tail feathers that make it almost impossible to fly and they do these crazy dances that take up so much time and energy and behavioral hard-coded behavioral response so in our seed in our our bird population you have the seed eaters are now under threat because there's less seeds you are now or maybe 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 another population of birds has moved into the area they also eat seeds so now your population is under threat the birds that can eat shells have more reproductive success because they have more food it is much easier to get your bird on and have baby birds when you have more food if you have less food your reproductive success is lower so of course going forward sorry corporate term from that point the shell eating birds are now in favor and the birds whose mutations of their beaks are make them even better shell eaters get even more successful so you see how this is a self-reinforcing phenomenon if there are less seeds but more shells and you are a seed eater but you've got some of your population that can eat shells you're going to gradually over time through your breeding through breeding successes select for like those birds that have can eat shells shells are going to have more success breeding okay now this is the point where i would ask has anyone got any questions but that would be a largely futile endeavor so i'll kind of push on so that's called environmental pressure what it is is that the world around you kind of has an influence on your genes because of you have to breed and the success rates above it has some pretty massive holes in it all right the underlying mechanisms for evolution and like on a genetic level are not something i'm going to talk about here because it is well beyond my capacity to do that while driving a car it would be pretty dangerous for me to whip out wikipedia and start reading off things but that's the broad strokes of evolution is that you have some sort of pressure that selects for certain parts of the population that then reinforces the selection of that the selection for that part of the population and then over time your original population will disappear and then you have a new species in this example the seed eating birds you could split the population could gradually select towards the shell eating birds and then all of a sudden the seed eating population decide to just piss off excuse my french um fine so to they just you know bugger off that's also the start of why birds migrate for better food so those birds leave so now you have two species you have birds that eat seeds and you have birds that eat shells back that's how you get two different species that's called species radiation and over time you can imagine how those species would then fill every ecological niche 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 what happens is this radiation just keeps going and going and going and we're not talking human lifetimes here we're not talking you know ice ages we're talking a billion years life's been on this planet for a billion years and even if this process takes 
a million and, and a million years is still a period of time longer than most humans can encapsulate and the difference between a million and a billion is staggering so even in a million years you can create evolution can push and create dozens if not hundreds of new species and the world has been around for and life has been on this planet for nearly a billion years just let that sink in for a second that's how many species have existed on this planet sometimes you get trailer, like uh, horseshoe crabs and if you don't know what a horseshoe crab is go and find out because they're awesome their blood is blue we use it to make CT scan dyes and other things it's really good for medicine it's really bad for the population like they get you know we suck their uh, blood out and put it you know put it in test tubes but it's really good for medicine and thankfully no, a lot of it's synthetic so we can um, we don't have to hurt the horseshoe crabs so go and look about the horseshoe crabs they're friggin awesome they have, they have existed for since for the last 223 million years. That is five of the last six great extinction events ago. Like, I, I don't have the words, well, you know, to describe to you how huge that is that a creature has survived all of them. If they could throw dice, they would be the paragons of gambling because they just survive. They make cockroaches look like idiots. As much as that's a possible ability. Anyway, what's your crabs? They're awesome. So you get critters that survive all of them. That's because they're ultra adaptive. They've got a really broad niche. They can eat bloody anything. And they're really hardy. All right. Um, but most critters fit a particular ecological niche. Niche. God, why am I having trouble saying that word? Niche. And if the environment then pushes them, uh, puts pressure on them, if it's slow and subtle enough, you will create, you could get that evolution change and new species created and then new evolutionary paths and niches opening up and new radiation of species to fill those voids. If it happens too fast, like, you know, <coughs> humans altering the planet, you can just wipe everything out. That's why cataclysmic change is um, accompanied by mass extinction events because it overrides a built species' abilities to withstand the change that's happening to their environment. All right, and, and as an aside, this is what... Um, so, think about dinosaurs. We all think there was an asteroid and they all died. Frogs survived um, the Mesozoic, the, the KT event, the Cretaceous tertiary event that the dinosaurs were credited as being destroyed by. Frogs survived. Um, frogs are some of the most environmentally sensitive creatures ever. The, the minute it became obvious that humans were overly fucking with the Earth's environment, we noticed that frogs were really copping a shellacking and they're all going to be extinct in the not-too-distant future. They're very environmentally sensitive. And yet they survived this asteroid impact. Yeah, cool. How? If something wiped out all the dinosaurs but didn't kill frogs? Yeah, bullshit. The asteroid did happen. It's there. The iridium layer, like the the, chem the 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 horizon, you can see it in rocks, especially in Europe and, and South America. Um, there's some fantastic examples of the um, uh, the iridium layer because the asteroid that hits in Chilixalub in the the Mexico or Mexico area um, was really high in iridium. So there's this layer globally of this asteroid dust that's really high in iridium. Um, and there's a fossil site in the Badlands in Montana in America where there's a whole bunch of um, 
creatures there's like a it's like a, a flood bank it's where a flood has washed a whole bunch of dead stuff against a rock wall and then buried it so it's been really well fossilized the fish in the gill there's fish and animals and dinosaurs and everything dead in this thing and they're really well fossils really well exposed really well um, protected the fish have all got spherules in their gills so little rounded pieces of of of, du- of dirt and it's that's a dead giveaway that this fossil bank in montana is from literally maybe a few hours to a few days after the meteorite impact hit and that's unbelievably cool but i've kind of wandered off the track a bit here um <laughs> god because when do i ever do that so um the the the, the environmental pressure that into the dinosaurs allowed for mammals to take over so if the asteroid wasn't the theta be all and end all they must have been going into serious decline by that point anyway which is true that you can see that in the fossil record um there's a line in jurassic park this is one of the more accurate ones where in the book really the the the, the crew all um, rock up dr grant and sattler and malcolm turn up and there's a stegosaurus in the book it's not a triceratops it's a stegosaurus and that's actually one of the only Jurassic era dinosaurs in it. But anyway, moving on. The Stegosaurus is really sick and it's laboring to breathe. The reason why it's laboring to breathe, as they say in the book, the, the, the vet Harding turns to them and says, oh, no, no, he's not laboring. The oxygen concentrations are vast. I'm oh, sorry, Harding. Grant says to Harding, oxygen concentrations on the Earth now are like half what they were during the Mesozoic, during the Cretaceous and the Jurassic. The, 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 the chemistry of the atmosphere on the Earth is vastly different than it used to be. If you were a dinosaur living today, it, you would breathe as if you'd just run a marathon or you were at 20,000 feet. The oxygen concentration is so low, they would really have trouble breathing. That's because the world has shifted different. It has moved on. So if the climate has shifted, if oxygen concentrations are starting to drop, the supercontinent cycle was at a peak of breaking up. Like, <laughs> I've launched into so many new topics right now. Plant tectonics creates supercontinent cycles. So eventually, all of the super, uh, plate tectonics wants to push all of the continents together because that's what heat dynamics does, is it kind of aggregates all of the stuff that's blocking their heat, which is coming out of the core, which is the nice thick continents, rather than nice thin oceanic crust. It blocks it, so it kind of pushes them all together, but then because they're all together, the heat underneath it gets a bit higher and it creates a super volcano and it blows up and it pushes it all apart. Yeah. At the Cretaceous event, there was a magmatic event called, there was a lava, a volcanic event called the Deccan Traps in India. It was a super volcano and it spewed out some stupid ass ungodly hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of billions of tons of lava in over half a million years crazy 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 levels of lava and that changed the climate uh, in the Permian it was the Kerguelen supervolcano which is yeah, in this right in the southern ocean yeah. anyway so imagine you've got a world I've now changed to talk about dinosaur world which I do all the time imagine a world it's a supercontinent cycle so Gondwana and Laurasia have been joined together to create Pangaea the supercontinent under which at the, at the height of the Jurassic, so the middle Jurassic, was one global landmass with an ocean in the middle called the Tethys Ocean that is now the Mediterranean. Oh, no, that's wrong, actually. It's now Saudi Arabia. 
towards the Middle East and some of the Mediterranean. So the evolutionary pressures that came from this... Anyway, the world is X. It's big... It's a hot, like, sorry, Pangea world, hugely forested. Like, absolutely, it's tropical jungle from one end to the other. We There, there were some arid belts, but there were no... There were no um, ice, no ice at the poles, so sea level was way high. So, like the the arid belts on the Earth, which produce you know most of Australia in the south and the Sahara Desert in the north, uh, what happened on our world now? We probably wouldn't have had them back then. So it would have been it would have been tropical forest from and the oxygen concentration was so high, tropical forest from one end to the other, with the occasional grassland man crazy high levels of vegetation so the oxygen carbon dioxide cycle would have been through the goddamn roof global temperatures would have been a lot hotter than they are today and that i'm going to say it that does not mean that climate change is a myth okay we're making it happen a lot faster than it normally does shut up and so any creature that lives in that world has adapted to this certain scenario so like uh, Mid-Jurassic, yeah, you have got Stegosaurus, you've got Allos... I think you've got Allosaurus. I don't know. That's not big no good to me. You've got a whole bunch of dinosaurs. Um, they would have loved this oxygen concentration, but everything would have been on fire every now and again. Sorry, there's a giant truck at my ass. Anyway, um, and then that slowly changes, and then when you're a large creature, when you're Stegosaurus, any number of small incremental sized changes that occur in the environment are going to put pressure on your breeding success so that again forces an evolutionary shift and if if you're having trouble with breeding success think about this Um, think about humans we have a breeding success we have benchmarks for this god go to a club put your anthropologist goggles on and look at the stupid ass sexual behaviours and and flirting and male parading and female parading that happens. It's 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 turn on the television you can see it. So we have a breeding success too. Us because we're aware, self-aware, we can make choices beyond rationality and beyond genetic programming, and we have a high degree of emotional intuition. We we we'll, we'll make these crazy, stupid-ass decisions that are neither logical nor evolutionary proper and breed with whomever we think we love who we want and that's why everyone has glasses now because their eyesight's getting shit because we're folding the genes for shit eyes back into the population over and over again I'm colorblind there are very few people who live in this world that don't have some deleterious condition that's been passed on by their genetics so that's 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 a little bit about evolution it's and I've gone all over the place I haven't created the most bloody linear understanding tree there that'd be cool actually an understanding tree so on a genetic level so the exchange of genes you can you can kind of see shifts it's the science is um relatively new it's been around for maybe 20 30 years we're knowing more and more about it every day well, here's the thing, actually. I forget who did the study, but it got pretty famous and it went pretty viral in science circles, <laughs> which is ironic. Um, 
what happened was these guys got a plate of agar. Now, agar is like a jelly. It's a neutral um, medium. You put it in a, in a plate and you grow bacteria on it. So it's pretty neutral. It also acts as a, as a source of food for the bacteria. And so this is where, like, say if you wanted to test if something had a particular bacteria on it, you would swipe the area that you're testing with a swab and then swipe the swab onto the agar and then if leave it overnight in a sort of moist, dark place. And if it, grow, you, if it then grows more bacteria, that's the bacteria that you got off your swab, if you do it properly. So that's what you use them for. These guys got an agar plate and they divided it up into sections. And the, se- the sections were on the absolute outer edge on both sides was zero antibiotic resistance. The next layer in for both sides was 25% antibiotic resistance or concentration, probably that's a better way of thinking about it. 25% concentration alcohol uh, antibiotic resistance. The next one in on both sides, 50%. The next one in, 75% until the center strike, of which there was only one, was 100% concentration antibiotic. They put swabs of common, not necessarily fatal bacteria. They did this for a whole bunch of different bacteria. They put them on the outer edge and within 15 hours, they were in the middle. Yep. But never not taking a full course of antibiotics ever again. So essentially what happened was, oh, you put the bacteria on the outer, both bacteria, the same bacteria on both sides and you wait to see what happens. It is pretty much inevitable that the the bacteria, as they encroach upon the 25%, they start to die. So a very they will fill up the, completely the 0% space, and then over time, because bacteria mutate and reproduce incredibly quickly, incredibly quickly. So you can have real-time evolution happening right there. So the 0% area is totally full of bacteria, totally full. And if they go into the 25%, they die. Very, very quickly, you will see a subspecies of that bacteria in the 25%, like a, like a branch, like roots growing in. One and then another and then another and then another. Because the speed at which bacteria reproduce, they will inevitably, just through random mutation and environmental pressure, produce offspring that can cope with the 25%. And this is the population that live on the edge because they're exposed to it. And that environmental pressure pushes them to evolve. And then that branch, like a root, weaves through the 25%, hits the barrier, and stops. And then it'll start to fill up the 25%. And it goes in on both sides almost the same time. Now, before the 25% is full, you will already start getting species invading the 50% because the ones that have gotten into the 25% already have a base adaption that makes them better at dealing with this particular antibiotic. So this is a process that describes how superbugs are created. If you don't know what a superbug is, it's bacterial Armageddon. Everything in our world has antibiotics in it. It's antibacterial. All this does is make the, anti- the, the bacteria stronger. There are species of bacteria and types of infections in the Western world, in the developing world, in major hospitals, in every major hospitals, that we cannot treat. They will kill you. We cannot treat them. 
and all bacteria will get to this point eventually. It is the nature of evolution. So 50%, and then of course it'll get to the 75%, and then it'll take a certain amount of time, it will congregate, it'll start to fill up the 50% because that particular subspecies is now perfectly comfortable living there. And then it'll get into the 75%, and then it'll do its thing, and then it'll get into the 100%. And then some stupidly low period of time, after you started the experiment, you have this bacteria living in a totally, completely, absolutely deathly hostile environment that would kill it and murder it if you put it in at the start, lives there quite comfortably. I find that vaguely terrifying. And so should everyone else, really. That is real-time evolution. That is environmental pressure creating a scenario where you have to change, your, where your genes change in order to survive as a population. Now, there is a lot more depth to this than I'm describing, okay? By bacteria can do a thing, some bacteria can do a thing called horizontal gene transfer, where they can, and I'm not gonna go into that because I don't really understand it terribly well. And I don't have it literally written down in front of me. It basically, it's another version that makes them even more adaptable. And there's such simple life forms that they can change very easily and still survive. If you and I tried to, that's assuming anyone's gonna listen to this, if you and I um, tried to have real-time evolution, we would die instantly because our body requires us to have a certain cohesive whole, all right? I'm not talking, your learning is different, but if, say, you wanted to grow another kidney, you'd die from blood loss because where's it gonna get blood from? You have enough blood to keep you alive. You would probably get anemic and die if you suddenly had another kidney or another liver, okay? Um, and you know, but and that's it, no gross oversimplification. So there's some, some people are born with webbed feet. That's not an evolutionary adaption to being in water. That is a misfiring of certain genetic sequences that control where your skin grows and how it separates down to the toes. Okay? Because our, our ancestors, we have fish DNA in us. We have reptile DNA in us. We don't have bird DNA. Interesting. Because if you look at the chain of human evolution, from human back to, to monkey, ape, whatever, back to whatever, back to whatever, back to whatever, before the era of the dinosaurs, there was a species of organisms called synapsids. Synapsids turned into everything. I think. I could be wrong about that. It's been a while since I remembered this. So there were a whole bunch of creatures alive. Actually, no, they didn't. They went extinct. Anyway, there were creatures alive in the, in the Permian before the Triassic that eventually turned into reptiles and turned into dinosaurs. And dinosaurs are a bit of a dead end, but some turned into birds. The same creatures, think of two paths. The path that created birds diverted from the path that created monkeys some time ago. So we do not have avian DNA in our genes. But we have fish DNA because we were once fish. We have bacterial DNA. You share 70% of your DNA in common with a banana. Actually, I think it's 90. <laughs> Chimpanzees are like 99.8% you. Like, absolutely. Anyway, so that's kind of a bit about evolution, and it's kind of meandering, as I want to do. Um...
But just remember, like, like the best way to remember evolution or to think about it is that nothing is the same forever. Everything will change slightly over time. That's the nature of entropy. That's the nature of living in, in, in an environment. If you think about who you are now, you're not the same person as you were 10, 15, 20 years ago. You can't be. Life experience has changed you. And in the same in that way, if you look at it at a larger, um, larger time scale, your natural environment has an effect on species level and changes them in the same way that your life experience changes you. Um, so it's good, good for a perspective shift. It's, evolution is one of those good tools that can help you think in, in deep time. And humans are not very good at thinking in deep time. But the, the, the change that occurs between species is not, it's not fast. It's incredibly slow. Sometimes it can happen randomly and quickly and create new offshoots and new subspecies very quickly. But it, most of the time that fails. Most of the time that new species can't compete or it doesn't fit in its environment. Sometimes it totally replaces the exist the parent species in a matter of moments geologically speaking so i know i'm just waffling i'm going to finish up there thank you for listening um it's always a pleasure doing these things i hope you learned something and didn't find my um, constantly branching out new things too offensive if offensive is the right word as always i seek to open minds get people thinking about new things you take away from this yeah, think about how you've changed. Think about how you've evolved to deal with stress. Now, sometimes stress creates resolve and stress creates a desire for change. And some, like there's the old, you know, the old adage that, you know, actually I forget what it is, but you, you're, you know, you're, you're, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's not entirely fucking accurate. There is such a thing as permanent trauma. But just think about how have you evolved? What has changed in you that enables you to deal with your scenarios or your life better now than when you used to? Have you changed? Have you evolved? What's changed? And nothing stays the same, ever. Just walk into a shopping center that was built in the 80s and hasn't had a facelift and think about change. <laughs> think about how I didn't get a phone. I didn't have a phone permanently until 2007 or something like that. Everything changes. But yeah, have a think about that. Shift your perspective. And this is ultimately what I do all the time. Shift your perspective and your thinking. Think about evolution. Think about change over time and space. Thanks for listening. <laughs>